financial education and access are not the same thing. So I get pitches yeah. on this all the time. We're going to democratize access. We're going to teach people. And then you read the deck. And I was like, well, what are you teaching people? <laughs> you're teaching people about technical analysis. Like you're teaching people how to day trade. Like in good conscience, I just don't think that's what we should teach people. Or it's an incomplete lesson. Like you right. can teach them, hey, this is things that people do. But right. like in the context of like what's actually happening, I think that's really, really hard. Like. You don't even talk about the fundamentals of capital formation. You just want to watch the lines move up. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseha.com. Poland is a private B2B liquidation marketplace. The startup connects sellers carrying excess inventory with bulk buyers across the world. The platform incorporates pricing algorithms, dashboard analytics, and sustainability metrics to find great liquidation outcomes. Hundreds of tons of usable products that would have been incinerated or gone to landfill is now used by happy consumers instead. Manufacturers get more revenue, buyers get cheaper inventory, and the world benefits. Learn more at www.poland.tech. Sorry, I'm just like, false start to get the morning limber up. Okay, all right. <laughs> like the That's not exercise, Jeremy. It is not exercise, I try to be. Okay, morning, Shien. Good morning, Jeremy. Well, you look much more rested compared to the last the crazy around the world flight you took before last week's session. I go to Manila next uh, tomorrow, so. Ooh, so. And we just saw the Endeavor team. We saw Manny Ayala, right, from the Philippines. Shout out to Manny for tuning in sometimes to our uh, show. Yeah, it's crazy now to have all these in-person events and then people come up to you and you're like, ah, I watched the show and I'm always like kind of shocked. <laughs> no offense, Jeremy. <laughs> you're like, boo, this is no, our no. deep, dark secret. <laughs> no. It's like, it's just, I thought it was just me and Jeremy talking to each other, but yeah. apparently other people listen in. Well, and I think we just saw this incredible event that the Endeavor team was held, right, in Singapore for the matching event between investors and startups. I thought it was just nice to see, obviously, in-person return. But I think they've always done a great job kind of like organizing everything in terms of how they match investors to folks. They focus in-person. They focus on the right, I don't know, format and the right setting. So I think they do a really, I don't know, world-class job. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun. My yeah, only complaint was I didn't get to... I got to the buffet line too late, and so I didn't get any protein. So it was just all rice. Rookie, nah, but it was so good. The conversations move. are good. Rookie fun. move, Jeremy. Uh, rookie move. I gotta, I got, I gotta, I gotta get to the buffet line first, then have chats. Not that way around. Chats first. Well, you have to eat before you start drinking. That was actually most surprising. I was like, I was like an hour into the event. I was like, is there water anywhere? You know, oh, like yeah, it was they kept, they kept coming around and trying to like fill my wine glass, and I was like, no, 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 no. I need to drink water. And it was hidden yeah. behind. Yeah, um, you had to do, go all the way out, hook left, yeah. find yourself a mug. And then yeah. it was like, 
is like they're trying to disincentivize water from being an event, which yeah, is why the event is... was so good, right? I guess. <laughs> no, no, it was a great event, and it was really yeah. fun to also yeah. get to see some portfolio founders who are in town right. for the event. I got to meet a portfolio founder that I've never met in person. Oh, um, you got to say the name. Got to say, do a sh- quick shout out. Of course, uh, Balanja Parts yeah. CEO Hitskia. Yeah. We actually found ourselves next to each other in the buffet line aforementioned. Ah. And he like looks over and he's like, Shan? And I was like, <laughs> Kiki? <laughs> it wasn't awkward, I promise. You know, I think the thing is, yeah, it's like, you, you, I felt weird because it's like, you know a lot of people from Zoom and then you're just like, finally making that, I don't know what's what, mind-body connection where you're like, oh, this is what you look like in real life, right? Oh and- my God, Darvesh from Paid. Yeah. I've never met him in person and he was like standing there and he's like, I'm Darvesh. And I was like, oh, you look so different. He's like, I'm told I'm shorter in person. Really? Uh, I oh, think in person, I said- everybody looks better, I think, because I think cameras don't do a good job. Low res, like whopping. I think everybody looks better. Well, no. And then, and then um, someone was like, oh, you look like you've lost weight. And then I was like, do we say that to people now? I was like, I think we say, oh, you look fit. Right? Yeah, and then yeah. he's like, no. He's like, as a British person, don't tell me that I look fit when I don't look fit. Yeah. So I think one interesting thing you were discussing last night was, of course, was like, hey, what's been the tech news, right, that's out there? And I think some folks were discussing a little bit about Tomasic, for example, just announced that they had completed their independent review of kind of like, yeah, exposure to FTX, how it happened. And I think there were three major parts of their findings, right? One was that they didn't assign any kind of like blame. I think they said they felt like the process for the investment decision and the due diligence was sufficient and adequate. That was their finding. The second was that they decided to cut the pay of the folks or the folk investment team volunteered to cut their pay. It's a bit fuzzy there because of this. So they announced that. Obviously, we don't know what the magnitude was. And then the third thing was that they announced that they were going to do a cap of 6% on early stage investments moving forward in order as a response to that, right? And obviously, this was picked up not just in local news. I was reading this on BBC, NPR, everybody. Because it's just kind of like an adjacency to the SBF show of FTX, right? So yeah, I want to kind of like take a pause here, Shia. What do you think? I mean, I think there's a, a couple different threads we can pull on here, right? Which is like, I, I think as a sovereign wealth fund, it can be hard to operate in the public eye because it's like, is grandma's money, <laughs> right? And so it has this quality of like, is it being well-managed? Are people fulfilling their fiduciary responsibilities? Yeah. And I think there's this aspect of like, Hey, like, don't lose grandma's money. Okay. So I think that's yeah, like 100%. Item one. Political then, loser. Yeah. Lose grandma's money. Yeah. But I think, like, the second piece of it is like, they're also an asset management business. And so right. they're actually in the business of taking risk to right. generate a return. And that just means that there are no guarantees. Like, right. in order for them to do their job well, particularly at the early stage, they have to take risk. Otherwise, they are, by definition, capping their returns. Right. And I think that's probably a harder argument to communicate politically. Right. And so I think, do you sort of tell your citizens, like, hey, this is kind of part and parcel of what we're going to do? And maybe that's a nod towards that, right? Because they say, hey, we're going to cap our exposure at 6% of the total fund. And I think, you know, when the news first, they tried to do the thing that Sequoia and everyone else did, which was like, hey, this is only 0.0000, like very small percentage of my total portfolio. Like on a portfolio basis, it doesn't matter. 
But of course, because it is like public funds, that just doesn't work as well as telling your LPs that. Right. Right. And so it seems like there's still a gap in communication or education, which is like, hey, we are going to take risks with public money. Right. Uh, but at a portfolio level, this is kind of what we expect the set of returns to be. But that does mean that there can be individual investments that will fail. Right. And in fact, if nothing fails, that actually probably means we aren't taking enough risk in that portion of the portfolio. Yeah. But that is a sort of more complex political communication, I think, to make. And I think what's unusual, maybe for like non-Singaporeans, or even Singaporeans, I don't know if you know, like what percent of our uh, national budget, our operating budget is actually investment income from the sovereign wealth funds. It, it's actually it. not insubstantial, right? So if, if you look at, we can put this in the show notes too, right? If you look at the uh, fiscal year 2022 budget, right? right? Net investment returns contribution was like 21 billion. Right. So, you know, that's like pretty substantial on total operating revenue of 90 billion. So that's what, about almost one-fifth? Yeah, it's like... One-fifth, actually, yeah. Almost one quarter. Sorry, yeah. So, sorry, there's the, we ran a slight deficit last year, but I think this is the tail end of the COVID expenditure. So total yeah. expenditure was $106 billion and yeah. the investment contribution was $21 billion. So, yeah, it's huge. like a... It's huge. And, and it's and, something that America doesn't have, for example, in terms of like having investment returns, for example, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Generate yeah. that operating budget, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like there's no, no risk, no reward type of thing, right? In fact, um, it's almost like exact opposite, right? Because America is running the total deficit on a federal and government level, right? I mean, we, to be fair, we ran a deficit last year. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's all the sort of major COVID expenditures. And I think right. if you... Jo- semi-seriously, right? Like our, our friends at GIC and Tomasic, when they saw the, all the expenditures, they're like, oh man, we got to work harder. <laughs> we have to put money, more money back into the system. I think they do a great job actually in aggregate over the long term. I think they've done a good job shepherding, I think the reserves, shepherding investment returns. And I think there's a very strong dynamic where I think they're using that investment and ownership income, right? And dividends to kind of like fund the rest of the budget. But I think it's, I think it's not an uncommon problem for sovereign wealth funds, right? And government-linked funds to have this issue, which is, like you said, the communications of it, right? Which is that the goal is to make that 10, 20% net IRR over the medium to long term. But in the short term, you're going to take hits, right? And I think that's where I think venture capital and the startup ecosystem is a very difficult by itself, I think, category to digest, right? Because... I think if you do a public markets investment, good or bad, day-to-day, so so forth, market, market, there's something you can do there, right? But you're not going to slide to zero straight away, so on so forth. Private equity, I think there's obviously a set of decisions. So there's a lot of levers you can pull, the returns. We all know, and we talked about it at last week's episode, is like venture capital as asset class is very risky, right? And so you have one out of 20, that's a home run if you're an above average VC, and 19 out of 20 does, right? And effectively, they go to zero, right? And some are going to land a plane gracefully. Some of them will land the plane very roughly and some of them will just crash, right? And I think this asset class by itself is not, I don't think it's just Singapore problem. I think it's just if you have a public accountability piece where you're, in some ways your investor is not institutional, but it's a retail investor base. Now, technically, obviously, we know Tomasic and GIC, there's institutional investors called the government, right? But in some yeah, ways... The, the, end, the end customer. The end customer, grandma. 
grandma's, grandma's son money. Grandma's money. and grandma's grandchildren, like all of them all are on. Yeah, but, but yeah. the power law is actually quite hard to wrap your head around. I mean, I like, barely wrap my head around it all the you, time either, right? Because you're making the decision about day to it, day. It's hard. It's, it's hard. actually a hard thing. But I so, don't know. I, I feel like... Just, should... I don't think it's political feasible. It's like, can you go out there and just say like, okay, we're going to make 20 investments and 19 of them are going to go to effectively zero from a returns perspective and one would do well. Well, but really, that's really, not really even really the well. math, right? That's yeah. not even the math. We're going to make 20 investments in 6% of the portfolio. True. But I think from a press perspective, yeah, yeah, you but know... Yeah. The press has an obligation to also like not be lame, Right. <laughs> Wait, to, to, wait, you, there is explanatory responsibility. Like you, you, you know, I don't think we should treat our citizens like idiots. I think we should treat them as like smart, capable people, and we're gonna explain it. Like, yeah, it isn't a sound bite. Like you have to actually like sit there and like do a little bit of math, but it's not hard math. Yeah, and it's six percent of the portfolio, and the rest of the portfolio is in like more traditional like bonds or infrastructure projects or things that are more like yield like types of properties, but. But it's a hard thing, right? And it, it's almost, it's not about like, part of it's like what you do, but the other part of it's like, well, how do you talk about what you did so that people can feel confident in what's actually happening? I mean, I think I agree that there's some level of messaging that can improve. And I think that I'm optimist. I think that people gradually understand more and more about this ecosystem over time. But I think, honestly, I think that the tricky part is just like the naming, right? Because FTX, I mean, is just going to be all over the news for the next one year, right? Saying back, SBF has been, he he did a- Liar's uh, Poker. Liar's Poker, classic, right? Big Shot, some great books that turn into movies. And basically, he's going to be releasing a book later this year, right? And SBF has been doing, so when, so okay, Michael Lewis decided to shadow this billionaire when he was at on his rise to the peak. And he watched him flame out. And he was doing a chat with him for apparently half an hour every two weeks, just entire time period. And then now that he's in jail, no, I'm sorry, he's under house arrest. It's going to be insane. He's still meeting them every two weeks and having four hours. Now, I'm like, what is this guy thinking? Like, this guy's going through now. He's under house arrest. He's going through legal discovery. And he's just talking nonstop to this author. Anyway, so it's releasing later this year. It's going to be tremendous. And like this, this, it's not really about this, right? I mean, we're talking about the domestic exposure, obviously, but it's just more like FTX, the, the fraud, the accounting standards, the individual decisions, the cast of characters, the Hollywood, right? Apple's bidding for the rights of the book already, right? Because they know it's a good story. They get, they have a male founder, you have a female founder for Alameda, you have the head of engineering, you have... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's like Hollywood couldn't have written it better, right? It's always yeah, and like it's a truth multinational, is stranger than fiction. Uh, it's a caper. You know. It's a caper movie. It's a caper. It's a heist. <laughs> That's the worst part. It's a crime. True crime. It's everything, right? And, you know, obviously we talked previously in the past in the episode, we do have a Singaporean connection. Constance Wang was the CEO in charge of this and her name. Jeremy, you got to get her on the pod, man. Uh, maybe. I, okay. You know what? I promise you I'll, I'll consider this. I'm going to send her an invite and just talk. But I mean, I, I think she's going to be wiser, right? She's, how, how, what can she talk about, right? I mean, she can't talk about anything during FTX because she's... I know. I know. Probably a plaintiff in this suit, so... No, and of course, like, separate from the, like, specifics of power law and venture capital returns and whatever, there is the fraud component of FTX, which I think everyone is, like, very disturbed by. And, like, the scale of the fraud, I think, is, like, what is mind-boggling. But I also mean, this is, like, a really terrible thing, but, like, if your founder wants to lie to you, there's not a whole lot you can do. 
because they're working on their business 24-7. You right. are not. Right. So, like, it means you need to sort for honest people. Right. And then there's this whole kind of gray area between, like, where is, like, honesty, where is carelessness, and where is fraud. Right. Because in startups, honestly, there is quite a lot of carelessness as people are growing and scaling and whatnot. And then you have to bring in a proper, appropriate controls and, and then compliance and then regulatory and things like that. But I, I worked on this deal and they had some angels and the angels were like, hey, like we need to write in provisions about A and B and C. Like, how can you just invest on the safe note? And I was like, dude, your check, your angel check, whatever is like, it's like 10K, okay? Right. I was like, if you want to go through legal turns, your 10K is going to get eaten up in lawyer fees. Right. And if you don't trust this guy, you shouldn't invest. Like, that's the most basic thing. Like, we don't even know, okay? Um, and so writing in all these provisions is not going to actually make this deal better at this right. stage. Right. Now, obviously, these things all change as the companies mature and you actually have something to, like, right. audit and follow and track or whatever. Right. But it still does require you to... You, you really need to choose the founder properly. Right. It has to be someone who has integrity. Yeah, and I think that's where I think the risk reward dynamic you said, right? The business of risk for reward and is it on that right curve, right? And I think the truth is it's not just Tomasic, right? There's Ontario, Teachers Pension Plan, right? As well as Sequoia, right? Was part of that same dynamic, right? And there's lots of other investors that were I think follow investors that were piggybacking off the due diligence of these lead investors, right? So I think there's a very interesting dynamic, which is like and I think there's a lot of nuance here, right? Which is I think we're saying as a fund is about the right risk and right reward, but venture capital as an asset class, from my perspective, has a lot of aspects that are politically very difficult, frankly, reality-wise to explain. And then you have the FTX dynamics, which is like flat out, you had a founder that was ultimately lead. And I think what's starting to shape up, and I think on the legal discovery stage now, is that like there were a lot of risk factors that were, I think, known or waived, but were not, they were material, but I think the conversation is like, what's normal, what's okay, what versus the reward of their growth curve. And then after that, I think later on, they started ballooning their fraud, right? I think there's a certain stage where they kind of like stepped up that activity and they were hiding that from their board and the investors, right? So it's, it's, yeah. not, like, it's not like a fraud from day one, right? It was like kind of like this hockey shape of fraudulent activity. And so, you know, I think that's, so that, I think this conversation is like goes back also to the board and was there any ways they could have done that oversight and management, which is another conversation. I don't know. It's, I, I, so I think what I'm trying to say here is like, I think there's nuance about what aspects to really focus on and what aspects to have there. And I think, honestly, I think my takeaway from this is that I think that if you are in the public eye, my, my perspective at least, is that I think it's difficult to make direct investments because if you're making a direct investments in about 600 investments, right? I think that's what, then, you know, you're expecting like maybe half of them at least, right? To effectively kind of like go under, right? And I think that's a very difficult conversation to be had. But I think if you're deploying this capital through VC but funds... But let's be clear. But let's be clear, I, right? Tomasic yeah. is not like investing yeah. in pre-seed companies. Oh, 100%. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like yeah. their check size just makes that impossible, right? So the things that they're investing in, like I don't even know what their definition of early stage is for this 6% cap or whatever it is. But like by the time Tomasic shows up and writes their check, like the business is like a going concern. But there's still Series B, Series C. I think there's still a very significant amount of risk that still happens. 
So it's just difficult. I mean, I think we saw the end financial, right? Kind of stake that was taken. And then there was like a political correction, right? So they weren't allowed to list, right? And that turned out to be very problematic for a lot of investors. Although there. now I think it's going to happen, right? Yeah, but I think the the valuation is quite different now that they're going to split up the whole units into different parts. It's quite clear the regulators are going to manage their profitability moving forward. So I think there's a very, all I'm just trying to say is that this asset class, I think from a, frankly, from a communications perspective, I think it's easier to delegate this to venture capital funds to manage on their behalf, right? That are happy to accept the capital, be a specialist, and be also be able to provide the arm's length, right? Independence and thoroughness. So it doesn't fall upon the main body, right? From my perspective. That, yeah. So your argument is that to avoid public scrutiny, they should just do fund of fund investments. Was, no, I, I think, no, I think, they, I think like you said, I think they should be clear that they invest in early stage. Let's just focus on what we're good at, right? Uh, and let's have some experts who are doing that. And final final investments are very normal uh, and lots of, it's the strategy for lots of LPs and capital allocators, right? I'm, I'm just saying that it's just, I don't say that, I, yeah, I say that. Yeah. And I think, and I think, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's about performance over on a 10 year time period, right? And I think that's the thing that we should really be focused on, right? The individual investment, like you said, that are going to be incidents. And I think it's going to reveal the organizational learning, which is like, did we learn from this error? Are we going to change how we do the process? And if they pick up the fragments, right, in that sense of the deal, but they learn what needs to be done and they can outperform in future deals, I think that's good. It's just that I think venture capital as an asset class is difficult to explain, right? Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But I, I would also say that, like, I think their job is really hard. It's actually really hard to deploy that much capital. Right. So, can make fun of them because we make fun of everyone. But I still have a ton of respect because their job is hard. I think it's a stewardship role, right? And it's no joke. And I think the Harvard Endowment, for example, is another example of university endowments. And now, of course, we see the sovereign wealth funds from the Nordic countries as well as the Middle East, right? They're all kind of like entering this dynamic, which is how do you manage wealth? But I think one of the big differences from my perspective is that you know, for a lot of the other sovereign wealth funds, they're managing capital that is mineral, right? Or extractive resources, right? And that's how do you shepherd this for a rainy day down the road, right? And transform the economies. But I think for Singapore's institutions, they are citizens, Grandma right? savings. Grandma savings, everybody savings. Heck, even I put money into my kid's CPF account, right? So my infant and toddler CPF as well is there as well. So it's not, and it's, 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 it's yeah, not easy for sure. On that note, how do you think about this whole crypto? I think we're talking about FTX or about crypto. We've had winter. Winter was called. Winter is still ongoing. But how do you how do you see that? I think people are going to be curious, right? I mean, I think in a sense, it's a good thing for the industry because it takes a lot of the noise out, right? And so whoever's left is actually trying to build. I think we still see some good activity in Singapore. Hong Kong has been making a big push. Right. And so it seems like it's going to be kind of like a test bed for China to see yeah. kind of how some of the digital asset stuff plays out in a more controlled environment. And then Dubai and the Middle East, they've also been pretty aggressive in trying to promote more crypto innovation. So I, I kind of think like the most interesting markets for crypto are actually emerging markets. 
because that's where the rails are the worst. And that's where people have a real need for alternatives that are not kind of subject to the whims of their government per se. And they really do have a need to transact, right? So like I know companies who have Burmese engineers. Right. They get paid in crypto. Right. And that's like a big deal for that engineer, right? Right. You get paid in USDC, you can actually support yourself and your family, even though, you know, your country is undergoing upheaval currently. Right. And so I'm kind of interested to see some of those use cases. And I think in LATAM, you see a lot of use cases around inflation hedging, right? Right. People want to get their money out of the peso or the real and get it to USDC. And it's not even a speculative use case. That's literally just like, I just want my money to hold value. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think people are still pushing forward and it's good. This is like the time to build. Crypto also has a quality that it attracts a lot of like gambling personalities. And so it almost feels like people are kind of like waiting for that next pump, that next thing to sort of get the animal spirits going again so that they can all kind of like jump in and take things to the moon. I, hopefully that, that stage is over. I mean... I don't think it's ever going to be over. People have gambling personality. It's not, it's not going to... It's human nature. Humans love the idea of easy money. You think Satoshi was like, kind of like when he wrote his paper about how to build trust around the world, and like you said, make global currency be a smoother place. And then he's like, yep. And then I'm going to coin a new language called Dogecoin Shiba Inu to the I don't, moon. I don't know. I don't know Satoshi... <laughs> I'd love to meet him or her. I would like to know day. who he is either. But I'm um, just saying, like, I mean, I, I think I think there's a vision, right? Which is like you said, like, I think there's a trust component, which, and that was happening on-chain, right? And then everybody was like, guess what? On-chain, the technology is too slow, or we, we want to do all these other stuff, so we're going to move everything off-chain, which sounds very fancy. But it just means that there's this totally transparent part, and then everything happens opaquely afterwards, and then it turns out, that turns out to be an iceberg under the waterline, right? And I think that's the tricky part for crypto from my perspective is like, I think it's like that's casino land, which is some retail consumers are treating it like as a casino, like you said, right? And and mixed up with traders who are trying to trade against each other and so, so forth and hype and whatever. There's a, uh, there's a documentary called This Is Not Financial Advice. <laughs> and it follows people kind of through the meme stock and crypto madness. Yeah. Right, you don't even need crypto. The meme stock thing, right? Wall Street bets and all that stuff that happened, like even sports betting, right? There's right. so many different vehicles that people can express this desire to like get rich quick. And I don't know, like in my in a past life, I spent a lot of time working on personal finance and financial education. And I don't know whether you can actually educate someone to like take away the thrill of fast money. <laughs> yeah, it's like can you imagine like it's like Nerd wallet or robo advisor, and then the slogan is like "get rich slow," right? Like it's such a terrible tagline. Like, like you know. But I, I think that that's the crux of it, right? Which is that I think that people are making decisions about investing. So I think that's why we. I think crypto is like so many different aspects about it. But I think when we're talking about the coins and so so forth, right? The trading and so so forth. I think the biggest part I remember is just like, I think a lot of people were making the argument that. Because there's all these stimulus checks, right? It turns out that the dollar was losing value. So people were buying Bitcoin, Ethereum in order to preserve value, right? And then it turns out it's actually the opposite, right? Which is that with all the stimulus, we end up creating a lot of liquidity and the liquidity moved into 
the coins and pump yeah. up the prices, right? Yeah, Which yeah, is like yeah. a, it's like, it's, it's like, and when I was reading these two things, I was laughing because this reminds me of my economics class of like Keynesian versus Hayekian. It's like the same thing happens from point A to point B, but nobody can agree on why point A causes point B in terms of time, right? It's just totally opposite. So it's just like watching the, I don't know, re-emergence, I don't know if that makes sense of like, this kind of like monetary arguments, right? It just happens to be in this 100% at that point of time, very low regulation, 100% globalized, zero barriers to entry kind of zone, right? And I think like you said, to some extent, the good actors also got washed out by the bad actors, right? Just can you imagine somebody who's like promising like, okay, I figured out a, a decent use case versus someone is promising 20%, 50%. Yeah, you look like an 12%. idiot, basically. Yeah, you look like an idiot, right? Exactly. But I think like product makers have responsibility too, right? Like you give some 18-year-old kid an app and like let them buy stuff on margin and they don't even know what margin is. Yeah. And like they could just go click. I mean, that's not great. Yeah. I mean, I think... I mean, the tricky part is like, it's good that they get a chance to financial educate. It's good for them to be able to get access, right? And I think for some segments... Financial education and access are not the same thing. So I get pitches yeah. on this all the time, okay? They're okay, like, okay, okay, go, go, go for this. it. Yeah. We're going to democratize access. We're going to teach people. And then you read the deck, and I was like, well, what are you teaching people? <laughs> you're teaching people about technical analysis? Like, you're teaching people how to day trade? Like... In good conscience, I just don't think that's what we should teach people. Yeah. Or it's an incomplete lesson. Like you right. can teach them, hey, this is things that people do, but right. like in the context of like what's actually happening, I think that's really, really hard. Like it's like you don't even talk about the fundamentals of capital formation. You just want to watch the lines move up. So are you really educating someone? And like, I, I think you have a fiduciary, right? Like if you're going to make something and put something out in the world, like is encouraging people to like gamble stuff that they can ill afford responsible? I, I don't think so. Oh, it's hard to, for someone to learn something you don't have access to it. And then you just end up not bothering to learn it, right? I've met folks in the Philippines and in Thailand who just historically just couldn't trade, right? And so they're just having this, I don't know what's the word, I was, I was going to use the word masterclass, but I don't think that's, I think that's a bit too high. I think just having these lessons that they have from YouTube, from Substack, from other people on Discord about trading. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's a kind of an interesting debate, right? In my head, it's like, well, it's super scary to watch them because like, I don't have conviction myself and it takes so much time and effort. There's so much sharp players with inside information and their approach and so forth. I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard, but it turns out people can now work from home, right? And and day trade, right? And I, I, I think like 10 years ago, I ran like we did all these like marketing experiments to try to like drive traffic to the website. And I ran a personal finance contest called So You Think You Can Finance, play on So You Think You Can Dance. And it was a sort of four week competition where contestants had to like do a like personal finance task each week. And then you would vote and someone would win a thousand dollars. It's not a lot of money. And we had a college kid who basically his whole sort of thing was he was going to put all his money into Zynga. Okay. And like, you know, people would counsel him and like explain to him like why it wasn't a good idea to put everything into a single stock, especially like a pretty like volatile tech stock. But he was like convinced. And so 
it made me think that like sometimes you actually can't teach anybody anything until they lose money. But that's exactly the point, which is that when you have excess, you lose a bit of money. But but it's sort as, of long like, as, as long as long as no, there's no leverage. Yeah, yeah. As long as there's no leverage, I think. Yeah. I, I, okay, I'll say this. I'm happy to be on a record. You cannot give leverage to somebody who doesn't know what leverage is or cannot use it responsibly. And I don't know what the right accreditation yeah. is that thing, but yeah. But I, I am. I mean, I do feel like if there's a way you can make someone take a class before you let them invest money, and fine, they, it's free will, right? We believe in free will, so people should be allowed to lose their own money. Why, why stop them? But it's like there's some things you can you can't learn until you viscerally experience it. Right. And so then the question is like, can you learn it in a way that isn't deathly? Yeah. Like, right. Or put you in such a big financial hole that's like really hard to recover from. I mean, I think that's what accredited investors are for, right? The accreditation component where you say. But the you accreditation know, is just that you have enough money to lose. <laughs> like that's, that's, it's, a, it's a proxy. That's uh, the bar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you don't want people who. You don't want people to lose what they cannot afford to lose, right? Because yeah. it eats into food, it eats into rent, it eats into energy, right? It eats into education, right? <laughs> it eats into healthcare, right? When you're at that stage. So I think that's the, I don't know, decriminalization spiel, right? Is that, yeah, people should be allowed to, to, to take on that risk if they want to, as long as they're aware about it and be, learn, be able to learn. Because I think you go to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? The book, right? You know. Oh my God. Sorry. Like, really? How are we going really? there? Really? Are we going there? Personal finance. I mean, I know. Actually, I'm going to, my dream is I will have like a, a personal finance curriculum for kids. Yeah. But it'll be like a learning by doing. Learning by doing. And they wouldn't be allowed to use it unless, do day trading, unless they use one of these democratization apps. Well, I think yeah. you need to learn about like what causes day trading. Right. Like, who's on the other side of that trade? Like, people just don't even really ask the question. Um, Robots full and full-time people working together, <laughs> as well yeah. as the central bank. <laughs> I think yeah, that's but, like, how, how do you think about it, right? Like, I think there's some sort of just, like... And I think part of the lesson is also, like, figure out which games you should play and which you shouldn't. Right. And how, how do you think about that, right? I think that's, like, a kind of a... It's not an instantly intuitive thing. My kids, they did a garage sale at the park down the street and five families they brought toys and books old toys and books to sell yeah and my daughter also bakes cookies to sell oh and so like at the end of it like i asked her what her learning was and she was like books don't sell (laughs) which is true the kid who sold the most stuff was the kid who had brought most toys because the neighborhood children who were at the playground their customer set was impulse buying toys not not books right so that she i was like that's a good insight and then the the neighbor kid noticed that my daughter had sold a lot of cookies and so her insight was next time we do this i'm selling food i'm not selling <laughs> books or toys right but like yeah. it's kind of like okay well you gotta pick which game to play right like you you just sort of wandered around and said okay i'm gonna sell them but then you watch be- customer behavior and you're like oh, okay it helps them think a little yeah. bit more and they had tried earlier, but they had picked a morning time. There weren't as many kids. This time they did it. It was an evening time. And then she was like, yeah, I think there's more kids in the evening. And I was like, also, that's a good observation. But, you know, like, they're little. They're six, right? So yeah. they're just starting to, like, think about it. And 
next time they're not going to sell books in the morning. They're going to sell cookies or toys in the afternoon. Mm. And I think slowly we can kind of like build up this understanding of like the economy. I don't know if we can like talk about the stock market and discounted cash flow quite yet. I don't think they have the math skills to understand that, but yeah. The core idea of a business with like a revenue, a cogs, like a profit, they can, they understand that. Yeah. And they care about profit. They want money to buy toys. That's their goal. <laughs> Welcome to capitalism. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Uh, I, I love that she sort of, it started to make me yeah. really happy. I, I think the, the uh, crux of it is just like, I think when it comes to trading, right? And I think that there's a certain level of requirements that we have, right? Which is that you should be able to preferably be able to gain or lose in accordance to what you're able to afford, right? I think that's a really important part. That's like gambling, right? Kind of like there's dynamics there that you should be as educated as possible and that there should be resources to help you get educated as fast as possible. And I don't think you should be a minor, right? <laughs> that's a, I mean, there well, were a lot know, I of- think, yeah. I think they could do it in schools too. Like when uh, I was in yeah, elementary yeah. school, I ran the school snack bar. Well, I mean, I, but the snack bar is different from trading, right? You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you got to start somewhere, right? You don't jump straight into trading. Secondary school <laughs> stocks trading club. Actually, I did go to a stocks trading competition, actually. Into school, actually. Did you really? Did they teach I you did. anything before? Or they were just like, hey, pick some tickers. Let's see what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't have much, yeah, but we pick some tickers. <laughs> so... But see, that doesn't, that doesn't achieve the goal. The goal is you actually have to like think about how the thing works. Yeah, anyway, all I'm going to say is that what I learned was I identified a really good opportunity and I think it was like a certain number of rounds and then things would move up and down. And then the game was supposed to end after a certain number of rounds. I knew that, but I didn't get that in the sense that there was a, I think I identified like maybe one or two rounds before the end of the round that these stocks were going to do really well. And so I made a decision with the team to come by. But like, on oh, what uh, time horizon? So two more rounds. Was, I, I don't know what the, the rounds were. I don't recall. It was, okay. anyway, I'm just going to say that we were the lead. We were doing really well. And it turns out that pop didn't happen till like supposedly the round after that, right? And so we crashed out. And, and But see, this is poorly designed, right? Because it's not actually teaching you anything. But it could. But the could problem have. is the time scale. It's like, well, over what time scale can a kid yeah. understand this? Like you need like years Right, and I like know. Kids I should... don't have a multi-year like attention span. I know. I was trying to go for that Warren Buffett hold, buy and hold strategy, but turns out the school needs to end the competition by a certain point of time, so they needed momentum investing. We had one, and I, I asked my parents, and my dad is like, Philip Morris. People always smoke. You know, it's called addiction. So I went to school, <laughs> and I was like, I want to buy Philip Morris, and the teacher was like, No. It's a vice like stock. You can't buy it. And I was like, that's what my dad told me to do. <laughs> I it's not clear what I learned out of that exercise either. So like I'm not sure we achieved the goal. Yeah. But in any case, I think there's like a huge gap in entrepreneurial like kids education that is very experiential. It could be like really fun. Yeah. I think what we're trying to say here. Well, I'm kind of getting away from this. Is oh yeah, we're so off our tangent. I don't even know what this topic is anymore. <laughs> I think we're just talking a little bit more about like the concept of democratizing finance, right? I, I think it, there's a lot of tension there, right? And I think that's what Robinhood kind of like ran into, right? Which is 
I think they had this conversation they had, which was like, hey, we'll open up access to everybody. And I remember there's this number that I think the, the, I can't remember the regulators were asking, right? It was like, what percentage of your folks made profit over this time period, right? And I don't think they answered at the end of the day, right? And I think that boils down to the heart of it, right? Which is that the truth is by opening up access, more people get to enter the arena. And out of the arena, a small percentage will be able to do well and do because they learn and so forth. And a lot of people will not do well, right? And so what's the net gain to society in that scenario? Democratizing access to financial instruments, right? You can focus on that, that chunk of people who did have eventual upside, or you can focus on a chunk who lost money, right? The longer group of people, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard one. Yeah. Because that accredited investors, so on so forth, they can continue to trade. They already are trading. I mean, I think if you did the math right, if everyone just sort of like bought the S&P and didn't touch it for 10 years, they would all make money. Like I said, get rich slow is such a boring <laughs> 10 years, 10 years to have returned. I mean, like, I mean, this actually goes back to CPF and all the, yeah. you know, it's just like, how do you maintain your principle without losing your, the nut right here, but continue having consistent returns over that time period in both the bull markets and the bear markets and the macro and the global situations? Yeah, but that's really why it's going, but that's why we go back to this, like the fundamental is how is how does capital formation happen? And why is a diversified approach the way to go? Because if you believe like over a reasonable time scale, right, there's increases to productivity and population grows, all that sort of stuff, like capital formation will occur. Yawn, yawn, yawn. <laughs> it's like, this is the worst YouTube channel. It's like, here's my secret to get rich over 10 years by ETF. And then it's like your 30 second ad. Yeah, it's called Dollar cost average, set it and forget it. And, you know, that's, yeah, I'm sorry. It's like shockingly boring. Yeah. I mean, I think that's for the average investor. I think that's probably the best strategy. And I think that's how I think about it on my public personal exposure as well is, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. There's another good t-shirt. Get rich slow. <laughs> that's all. I mean, you better open up this store, right? Like, yeah, I know. I've got all, all sorts of great. I got all sorts of great T-shirt slogans. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, if you had someone thinking about investing, right, and thinking about that, what what's your advice? Like in life, you don't give some advice. Talk about what games to play. You talk. This about, is not financial like, advice. I'm not qualified to give financial advice. I mean, I would say like most people don't actually want to spend their time looking at the market. And so I would say, hey, think about a number. Let's say you want to save, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month. Okay. Yeah. I would put like maybe like 950 of that into a broadly diversified basket of stocks. And maybe $50 of that, right? 5%, I could sort of mentally create as like a learning pot. Right. And with the understanding that I could lose that money. But I would use that to like do riskier stuff, learn about new industries, things like that. Yeah. And so the act of like regular saving and compounding is going to stand you in good stead. But right. you still want to like do fun stuff, invest in your friend's thing, buy a Dogecoin. Sure. Yeah. Right. But you can do it within a constrained like, right. I'm not going to blow myself up. And right. yeah, if it does well, then you're like, oh, I'm a genius. Yeah. 
but but at least you don't yeah don't blow yourself up i think it's like a basic basic principle yeah on that note thanks so much and see you next week see you next week thank you for listening to brave if you enjoyed this episode please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues we would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.